special thanks to the director. Thank you for bringing me down and for having me here uh, in Dayton. It's been a long time, and I did not remember the cold. Uh, thank you, Dawn, wherever you're sitting, for all your wonderful standing, for all your wonderful help with the emails and coordinating this whole thing. Thank you, Jeff, for introducing me and for allowing me to look through your archives uh, when I came down as a graduate student. Uh, and Squire Brown, personal thank you to you, sir, for helping me so much gather all my materials when I was here. Uh, Jeff could have said controversial. I mean, it's a good word, too. Uh, I want to give you the overview of the book, uh, The Jet Race in the Second World War, that I wrote, which was my dissertation at Ohio State, go box right up the street, and I would come down here and hang out with the airplanes, including Miami 262. I consider it mine, sorry. I wrote the book. And I went into the archives, and this was one of the many archives that I went to. So there's a lot of really, well, what I hope to think is good history in this. I did do a lot of research, and I hope it is a little bit controversial, because I do come to some conclusions that I can back up, that I'm going to offer here tonight, and you can judge for yourself. So I'm sure we'll have a lively conversation, and then we'll have a good question and answer, and you can tell me what you think. I do work for the Air Force. Uh, I'm speaking for myself, as Jeff pointed out. If you want to get a hold of me, down there, Sterling Pavlik, at maxwell.af.mil. It was 80 degrees last Sunday in Montgomery. <laughs> the summers are horrible. I got that going for me. The genesis for this project. I've always been interested in airplanes. I'm a little bit too big to be a pilot. I tried. I'm too big. The Air Force didn't want me. Now they do. I can't get it. I would go to museums like the one here and the one in England at Dex Duxford, and they had an ME-262, and I kept hearing the story and reading the story about how Hitler ruined the German jet program. And I didn't believe it, because I don't like that single point of failure answer. So let me give you the overview of what I wrote in the jet race in the Second World War. In the mid-30s, and these are all mid-30s airframes, there was a problem emerging with the technology. Ed Constant, the historian, called this a presumptive anomaly. There was going to be a problem with this configuration, the propeller and the reciprocating engine, because you could only make a propeller move so quickly, and a reciprocating engine can only produce so much power this configuration, single-engine fighters, was only going to go about 440, 450 miles an hour. The engineers, the people that work with numbers, figured this out. A presumptive anomaly was coming. You can't get much more power out of these. Now, of course, these are the airplanes that become famous in the Second World War. All of them in this museum. I didn't, I think I might even have taken your pictures. Uh, all of these are here. But what they figured out is they had, a couple of really intelligent people figured out, is they had to figure out a different way to power an airplane to break this barrier, to go faster, to go higher. And so what you get is the jet race. And it's very dry here, so excuse me while I drink. 
just water. Let's start with the Germans. In Germany, you get this guy, Dr. Hans Pabst von Ohain. And I know you're trying to sign that, but Hans, there's the spelling. Ohain. He's a PhD. He's just graduated. His dissertation was on jet engines. His dissertation was on how to add sound to movies. I was surprised. Just about as surprised as you are. But he's a really, really intelligent guy. And he has a very mechanical mind. And he figures out how to make a different kind of engine. And this is the birth of the turbojet engine. His advisor goes to some of his industrial buddies, who you'll see in just another slide, and says... Here's a smart guy. He thinks he has an answer to the airplane engine problem. Why don't you hire him? And so a very important German aircraft manufacturer says, yeah, I'll take a shot. This guy's a doctor. He's smart. He looks great. He's got a pretty interesting idea. Let's try it out. Hans von Ohain builds, with the help of his auto mechanic, I'm not making this up. This is how it happens. He goes to his auto mechanic. He says, hey, can you do some welding for me? I need to build something. It looks like this. Builds this engine, which he eventually calls the, S, the Heinkel S3 engine. And that's him standing in front of a, a, a mock-up. It's a centrifugal flow turbojet. Pushes the air out, burns it, and then it thrusts it out the back. The guy that hires him is named Ernst Heinkel. Has an aircraft company make some pretty cool airplanes. Heinkel really, really wants the contracts for the brand new Luftwaffe's fighter airplanes. And as we all know, fighter planes are fast and sleek and blow things up in the sky. And Heinkel builds this interesting looking airplane. It looks fairly fast, right? The HE-178 as a test bed. The HE-178 powered by O'Hein's engine, is going to fly for the first time in August 1939, August 27th, a week before the Germans invade Poland, alongside of another airplane that Heinkel built, which is a pure rocket one, but I don't do, do rockets, I just do turbojets. We can do it in question and answer, not now. Hitler's there, our, our favorite bad guy to hate is there. And he goes, it's interesting. Fairly cool. Admittedly, fairly cool. Flies without a propeller. He goes, what good is it going to do me? In his mind, I suppose. He says, how can I use this? Hitler doesn't figure it out. Frankly, nobody can figure it out. But Hitler doesn't. He says, nah, this war is going to be over pretty quick anyway. I don't need it. Heinkel, go back to your fun little airplanes. Keep building my bombers, HE-111s. Beautiful aircraft. This one, they build two versions of the, of the experimental plane. They're both powered by the S3 engine. And it sort of does okay, but it doesn't do anything important. More importantly, Heinkel doesn't get any money for it or a contract or anything. And it's really just an experimental test bed anyway. Absolutely. Uh, 410, not bad. 
the first one only goes about 280 because they couldn't get the wheels to retract. But that's, we're getting off topic now. Now we're getting really specific. HE-178. So what does Heinkel do? Well, Heinkel keeps building bombers. And he builds some very interesting bombers, some very beautiful bombers. Of course, the biggest failure that he produces is the 177, which is, if you, under, if you remember the story of that one, it's two engines in each nacelle, and they're back-to-back, -back, and the back one always catches on fire. Not a really great design. But Ernst Heinkel takes all of his contract money that he's getting for all these airplanes, and he says, I'm going to keep thinking about this problem, about this issue, about turbojets, about airplanes that go really, really fast. And he goes and he takes his in-house engine designers and he puts together the best engine of, of his whole career. There's one more after this. But the best engine of his career is the HES-8A. It's a mouthful, but that's what it looks like down there. A little bit of axial, then some centrifugal, and then more axial. And it's the turbojet engine, the S-8A that powers his version of a twin-engine fighter, the HE-280, on March 30th, 1941. Okay, let that sink in for a little bit. 1941, when the Germans are still doing well. Heinkel comes up with an experimental platform with his twin-tail design. I mean, it's just, it's a very aesthetically beautiful plane. That's flying in 1941. Experimental, so we know it's going to take some time to develop it, and it's going to take a lot of teething problems, and it's going to have some issues. But Heinkel's all over this. He says, yeah, this is cool. This is going to make a difference. What happens? Well, Heinkel's not one of Hitler's favorites. Heinkel builds bombers. Heinkel doesn't get a contract for a very viable aircraft powered by his engines, his company's engines. He could have done the whole thing in-house, and, and, and he simply doesn't. He doesn't get a contract for it. A couple of reasons. Personality issues. Der Fuhrer doesn't like this guy very much. He's not his favorite. He's okay. He's not his favorite. We're getting him next. Secondly, the HE-280 was very lightly armed for the time. 20-millimeter cannons as compared to the 30-millimeter cannons of the next page. So smaller guns. And it wasn't going to be as fast, very short range, very tempestuous engines. It's an experimental test bed. Well, one of my first conclusions or, or suggestions would be that this could have been a viable project much earlier, but simply wasn't chosen. Heinkel goes back to building bombers. And he has trouble with that. Okay. How about Willy Messerschmitt? This is one of the Hitler's favorites. And Messerschmitt, as you can see, is building all kinds of airplanes for the Germans at this point. Excuse me. The ME-108, which is a nice little trainer sort of liaison aircraft. The 109, of course, in a multitude of variants. 35,000 of these built during the war by his company and a bunch of licensed companies. The 110, the heavy fighter, the 210 and slash 410, 
which is an even heavier fighter and sort of a disaster. And then the gigant in both the unpowered and the powered versions, Willy uh, uh, Messerschmitt's attempt to build a really, really big airplane. Hitler says, mm, stick the fighters. You're good at that. Messerschmitt has the idea of, yeah, I can do this. This is interesting. This is exciting. I do fighters. Let me take a stab at this project. Let me take a stab at this issue. And he comes up with, in 1938, basically a drawing on the back of a cocktail napkin. He's out having some couple of beers and some wiener schnitzel. Hmm, this might be interesting. He draws out this configuration that's going to have two engines under the wings, one, one under each. You've seen what they look like. And he says, I can build these. He doesn't have express permission, but he does have a lot of money from all of his contracts that are coming in, especially after 1935. He's got resources. He's got designers. He's got materials. And he says, let me take a stab at this and build a couple of prototypes. See what happens. What you get is this little machine here, ME-262, originally a tail dragger. And I've got a story. I know you love stories. First flies on July 18, 1942. 1942. Still fairly early in the war. Okay, interesting story. The tail dragger version suffered from control problems, and the airflow doesn't go over the elevator surfaces, and it has trouble getting the tail up off the ground. So the lead test pilot for Messerschmitt figures this out, and he goes, yeah, let's try it this way. And he gets it going down the runway, and he gets the jets going like this, and he's going, and at 112 miles an hour, he stabs the brakes, and it lifts the tail off, and then he takes off. <laughs> Just like that. Works perfect every time. The first military test pilot to try it out, this airplane, this airframe, UC, PC, UC, version 3, does this, and, and the test pilot says, okay, but at about 115 miles an hour, you got to kind of stab the brakes. And the guy goes, you're crazy. Goes down the runway, goes down the runway, goes down the runway, and he doesn't take off and runs into the woods, almost ruins the plane. And he goes, oh, maybe I should have stabbed the brakes. <laughs> it's tricky. <laughs> it's brand new technology. It's very difficult, and it's got some problems. It's experimental. And Hitler goes, hmm, but this might be useful. 42, remember. This is when the British are starting to come over, not in huge numbers, but the British have these big bombers that they're bringing. This might be useful. So let's think about it in the scheme of the whole Second World War. Okay, so 1942, Messerschmitt has a viable prototype of the, this experimental jet plane that he's going to have to fix, especially the tail dragger part. But we're getting closer to viable combat jet aircraft. Please. No, no, no. I'm getting to that problem in just a second. Not Heinkel's engines, not even Messerschmitt's engines. He has to farm them out. I am getting there, I promise so let me give you a couple of the myths before I get back to the engine itself, because this is a, it is an important component. There is a myth, still perpetuated, sought in a book today that was published last year, 
that Hitler came along and said, I want it to be a bomber, the 262. Well, let me roll back the pages a couple, about 30 pages, and what I hope you can buy and read and enjoy. The book, based on the movie, on my life. Is this thing on? I'm kidding. I was very happy when I saw that you got a whole bunch of copies of Jet Race in. That was very cool. One of the first times I've seen it actually on the shelf since I finished writing it and publishing it. Yes, Hitler does say that he wants the ME-262 to be called a bomber. Yes, there is that order. I've seen it. But let's go back to 1940. Early, early in the war, Hitler goes and he says to Willy Messerschmitt and Ernst Heinkel and all of the aircraft manufacturers, I don't want you to work on any experimental aircraft that will not be in full production in six months. Period. Cancel everything. It's not ready in six months. I don't, you, I don't want you to even look at it or think about it. Messerschmitt is National Socialist, but he's also capitalist. And he says, yes, but we will still be building planes for a long time. Therefore, I'll just sort of ignore that one. And he does. And he keeps working on the ME-262 airframe, even after it was expressly forbidden by Hitler. The next year, 41, Hitler reissues the order. Anything not ready in six months, cancel it. And Goering, head of the, air, the Luftwaffe, comes along and he says, everything unless I give permission for it. So it cuts a loophole, a big loophole for Messerschmitt and Heinkel and everybody else, Junkers. So all along the way, these orders came down, and we seem to think that, yes, oh, they were followed to the T by the letter, because Hitler, he was all important and very powerful. No. Orders were expressly ignored on a regular basis. So when 1944 comes along, and Hitler says, I don't want it to be called anything but a bomber. Yes, I've seen the order. <laughs> the order was ignored. Messerschmitt kept building the ME-262 as a fighter. And then when Hitler saw it fly and said, well, can it carry bombs? And Messerschmitt goes, no, 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 of course it can. Let's go back to the shop and we'll build this wooden bomb rack so it looks like it can carry bombs. Messerschmitt, throughout the entire time, was ignoring the order for it to be a bomber. Never even put a bomb site in it. So the order, it's true, the order is there, but it's expressly ignored all throughout production life, as well as the design life of the ME-262. So, at the end, Hitler it really doesn't matter that much because a lot of people ignored him. Fortunately, we win. Yay, America. But he gets ignored on a regular basis. But I still hear this one on a regular, uh, uh, often, and I'm like, eh, not really. The other big one is aviation fuel at the end of the war was in very, very short supply, which is true. But everybody seems to forget that the turbojets run on what's equivalent to diesel rather than high-octane aviation fuel. So it wasn't the lack of fuel, because there was lots and lots of diesel laying around in containers in various parts of Germany, not just laying around, but sort of in containers around the country at the end of the war. Tons of it. Uh, the USSBS, United States Strategic Bombing Survey, sends economists in after the war, and they go, ah, there's tons and tons of diesel. It's just not in the right places. 
And we, P-47, specifically had destroyed lots of trains, so you couldn't get it from one place to another place. There was lots of fuel for the airplanes, the jets especially. They just couldn't get it around. So a couple of myths I wanted to dispel. You can come after me and question and answer. Here's the real problem. Getting back to your question. Here's the real problem. And I checked today, and there's one right out in front of the ME-262 out in the Second World War wing. And it's cut away like this so you can look at it. The eloquent design of Junkers UMO, the Junkers Aircraft Engine Manufacturing Company, who built 99% of the engines for the ME-262. There were a couple of test beds with the Heinkel engines and a bunch of different really weird configurations, but this is the engine that they use. In the first versions of the experimental 004, they were unrestricted as far as what materials they could use. And so the first models used a lot of things like chromium and molybdenum. Well, you get to 1943 and 1944, and the Germans are running out of these very, very scarce raw materials. Molybdenum comes from, I want to say Brazil, maybe South Africa at that time. It came from somewhere where the Germans weren't. Let's just leave it at that. So when they freeze production of the 004 in 1943, and they say, this is the model we're going to build, don't, don't change it. Do it like this. There's no chromium. There's no raw material, the really high-end stuff that's going to protect it. And what the Germans find is it therefore becomes a very, very fragile engine. After about 10 hours of running it, you have to completely dismantle it and put it back together. 10 hours. Rolls-Royce, who builds the engines today for all the big jet airliners, just had one of their newest engines that's just about to come out pass a 100,000-hour test. That gives you a bit of a comparison. Sure, we're in the 21st century. Get it. 10 hours of flight time. And there's two of them on each airplane. But they can make them. They can make a lot of them. Germans make about 3,000, 3,400 of these during the war. It's not going to change everything, but it's the step forward in jet development. But this is the big problem. It's the engines rather than Hitler's orders or fuel or pilots. I'll come back to the pilots later. That's another great story. Okay. So I want, I want you to think about this one as the the focal point of what holds the German jet programs, plural, back. And that's the engines because of the scarce raw materials that the Germans simply do not have. Forward. However, I told you I had a lot of good pictures. By 1945, by the end of the war, the Germans have produced a couple of jet airplane aircraft types that are interesting even if they're not completely game-changing. The ME-262 at the top, first flight July 1942, excuse me, the Heinkel 178, 1939, the HE-2A in 1941, the HE-162 right at the end of the war. Fascinating little aircraft, single engine on top of the spine, 
designed, pre-production, production testing, and operational status, nine weeks. It's mostly made out of plywood, except for the engine, obviously. Great, interesting stories about that. It barely reaches operational status by the end of the war. I've seen one report of a P-51 pilot that saw one flying. It's the closest the Germans ever got to putting that into operations. And then the Arado, which was BMW engines, yes, that same company, BMW, uh, the bomber version of the Air 234 that flew for the first time in June 1943. And the Arado, although not produced in a whole num a huge number of, of aircraft, lets Hitler finally in December 1944 say, okay, the ME-262 can be called a fighter because we now have the Arado bomber. And, and Mr. Schmidt goes, yeah, I wasn't really sweating it that much to begin with. And so we've got a bomber jet and a fighter jet in the German inventory right at the end of the war, which is obviously going to be too late. Americans are already on the continent. The French are free once again. The Russians are coming in from the Eastern Front. Okay. Let's switch gears a bit. So what's happening in the other two places that I promised I, was ta I would talk about? Right on time. Yeah, this is good. If the Germans have both Im important, interesting, and in intelligent people at the bottom pushing this idea up, the O'Heins, Messerschmitt, Heinkel, and they've also got official top cover, somebody paying for it, I use the, I use the words in the book, Incentive and initiative. Initiative from the bottom, incentive from the top. People both pulling Hitler, Goring, and money for the Luftwaffe, and pushing it from the bottom, O'Hein and Messerschmitt and Heinkel. In Britain, you've only got the push, the initiative. And that comes in one man, Frank Whittle, later Sir Frank Whittle, later came to our country because we paid him more. Frank Whittle comes up with the idea about the same time as O'Hein, and it looks pretty similar to what O'Hein came up with as well. And there doesn't seem to be any sharing of secrets. Both of them kept to their lanes. Neither one of them really knew what they were doing on either side of the English Channel. And there were a couple of other jet programs that had the potential of cropping up in other places. So it's just technology that was just ready to be born. And as a technological determinist, I would say, the technology sort of found the people that needed to invent it. We can talk about that later, too, if you want. I get a lot of con concerns about that in conferences. Frank Whittle comes up with the idea for this engine. The first one, he, bu he builds his own company, and he calls it the W1X. Whittle's an important and interesting person for another reason, too. <clears throat> At the time, he was in the RAF. He was flight officer Frank Whittle, and he was a, a, a test pilot that was sent to engineering school because he had this idea. And he was just finishing engineering school, and he did really well, by the way. And they said, great, now you've got your master's, the equivalent you're going back to be a test pilot because you're such a good test pilot. And he goes, let me work on this for a little while. And the RAF said, why? There's nothing we need. 
You need to be a test pilot. He goes, no, come on, let me work on this for a little while. I've almost got it running. A guy comes down and said, by the name of Henry Tizard, who you might recognize from that thing called Radar. And he writes a letter to the general. He says, now, you should let this guy work on this. It might become important. Tizard was such an important guy that the general said, yeah, okay. The RAF puts Frank Whittle on what's called special assignment and lets him be an officer while he's building the first jet engines for Britain. So he's off the hook from doing Air Force stuff, and he designs Britain's first jet engine, the W-1X, later the W-1. The government, who plays a big role in just a second, come, goes to Gloucester, an aircraft manufacturer who's not doing anything important at the time, biplanes mostly, for Coastal Command, and says, Gloucester, why don't you build a mock-up of an experimental aircraft that we can use for this crazy new idea this Frank Whittle dude has. And they come up with, the, and the British love really long designations for their airplane, E-28-39 Pioneer. Frank and his team call it the squirt because the air squirts out the back. I like the squirt better. It's just me. Squirt flies for the first time on 15 May 1941. A little bit after the Germans, but still prior to any sort of operational production of combat jet aircraft. So the British are in the game, but face problems. Here's why. Britain says, the Crown, the Treasury, says, okay, now it works. We, the Crown, are going to take this idea and build it in a bunch of different places. Frank Whittle goes, um, how about my paycheck? And they say, no, 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 you work for the RAF. You don't get a paycheck. You get an Air Force paycheck. And the government comes in and takes the engine design, basically, and gives it out to three different companies who change it and modify it slightly and makes it very different because the Crown owns the patents. And you get Rover the now car company that I don't even know who owns them anymore, Ford, Rolls-Royce, who's still in the jet, aircraft, jet engine development world, and Power Jets, which was Frank Whittle's company, and the three different versions of the very same engine that are being built in Britain during the war. You think it would work out great, wouldn't you? It doesn't. Because there are changes, then there are problems, and then Frank Whittle refuses to work with those two companies because he says they're ruining my designs. And so only Power Jets has a really good working one, but they're also the one with the smallest shop, and they can only do one about every month. And if we look at the Gloucester Meteor, the follow-on to the squirt, it needs two, right? So there's a problem with production. You get a very, very strong initiative from the bottom, Frank Whittle, and this very, very small company, Power Jets, they just don't have the capacity to do it, and Frank Whittle simply doesn't want to give up his patent rights. It goes a little bit deeper than that, but the British don't have any real need for this air aircraft at that time either. By this point, the Germans are no longer coming across the English Channel. What do you need a high-speed interceptor for? 
Colossae builds one anyway. The F9-40 Meteor. The first Allied jet in operation. Cool story time. Yes, it saw combat. No, not against ME-262s. The Gloucester Meteor was the only airplane in the inventory, British inventory, fast enough to catch up to the FI-103, which you know more uh, uh, fluently as the uh, V-2 buzz bomb. V-1 buzz bomb. Sorry, V-1, not the rocket, the little airplane. Fiesler 103. One of those out on the floor, too. The Pulse jet by the Germans with the warhead packed with dynamite. The Gloucester could sneak up behind it and shoot it down. And there's a great pilot report in Britain of one of the pilots. He's flying up trying to catch this, this V2, V1, and his gun's jammed. He has no guns. Oh, what will I do? That was more Scottish than English, wasn't it? Anyway, so what he does, he flies a little bit faster, a little bit faster, catches up to it, flies next to it, puts his wingtip underneath the wingtip, the little one, and does one of those. And it spins off and it explodes. Now, he puts his wingtip under the wingtip of a flying bomb. Tips it over and it explodes. Not on London. I guess that's the happy ending. And he says, destroy Doodlebug, nothing else to report. Great story. Okay, history's full of them. So it flies in home defense. And then it flies for the rest of the Commonwealth countries until like 10 years ago in different versions. By the end of the war, catching us up to 1945, to talk about the three programs separately, Gloucester has produced the Meteor, which first flies in March 1943. De Havilland, another aircraft company, using the same engines, comes up with the Vampire in, by September 1943. The British have a fairly decent jet program going, but they really don't have the need. They don't see the driving force behind having these airframes, especially during the war. What they really need is some heavy bombers. And to be able to find cities at night, that's a whole other issue. So what they do is they don't put a lot of effort into the jet program until after the war. Whole other story. Not even going to touch it. What about America? Come on. This is where it gets really cool. No, I promise, if you've loved it up to now, just wait. In the United States, you have incentive from the top, from the very, very highest levels of government and industry. You don't have the guys inventing it. You don't have initiative from the bottom. But you do have a government that says, yeah, now, like right now. We need this yesterday. Henry Harley Hap Arnold goes to, that is a mouthful, Henry Harley Hap Arnold goes to Britain, 1941, and he sees Frank Whittle. This is Frank. This is a British picture again, and this is the early version of the Whittle engine. And he's poking it out the window here because that's where the exhaust goes. And he sees it run, and he goes, "You know what? I'm in charge of the air forces." Before they separate, he says, "This looks interesting. Let's put some money on this, and let's put some industry on this." I think we can make a difference. Do we need it? No. Has that ever stopped America? No. We're going to build jets. 
And he goes to a very close friend of his. Again, personal contacts matter. Larry Bell, who owns Bell Aircraft Company in Buffalo, New York. And you think it's cold here. Larry Bell builds weird airplanes. Not just strange, not just odd, but weird. In the mid-30s, he built what was called the XF-1. They actually built a couple of these abominations, which was designed as a heavy fighter. And in these, the, the, the engines point backwards, and you can see the propellers back here, and you can see the guns here. And you could have a dude that sat in this and shot the gun, and then if anything happened to the engine, he could turn around and work on the engine. I don't, make, I don't have to make this stuff up. That's, that's awesome. They were going to build something that looked like this, and it was designated XP-59. And he'll reuse that designation on his first jet because it's much more secret. But XP-59 was supposed to look like that. His greatest contribution up to 1939 to aeronautical history is the P-39, and it's a great, interesting aircraft, a door for the pilot, mid-engine configuration, the long shaft, so you could shoot a really big bullet right through the propeller hub, and a nose wheel, first airplane with a nose wheel. That's, that was his legacy up to this point. Well, that and he knew Hap Arnold. And Hap Arnold goes, you build weird airplanes. How about this idea? Larry Bell is sitting on six aircraft designers who he called his secret six. Not a lot of interpretation there. He just called them the secret six. And Hap Arnold said, you build weird airplanes. You're not busy right now. We didn't like these. The Soviets loved them. We didn't like them at all. How about you build the first jet airplane for the United States of America. And Larry Bell said, yeah, I can do that. Why not? How much is it worth? Well, he did say it. He said, at first he, had, he agreed to do it, and then he asked how much it was going to be worth for him. Larry Bell puts his six best designers on this airframe, the XP-59A. They just add a little A to make it more secret. The XP-59A, also called the Era Comet, he liked putting A's in the middle of words. Era Comet is a very, very conservative design. Very low wing loading. It's not built for really fast speeds. It's built just to test out the theory of jet aircraft. Yeah, they're going to put some guns on it at one point. We eventually build 66 of these, a couple for the Navy, 66 inclusive. But it's not built to be a production jet fighter necessarily. It can do the job if it needs to, but hopefully not. The point is, other planes in the American inventory are just as good or better than this as designed. It's designed more as an experimental platform. We get a couple of engines from the Brits. We don't even build them ourselves initially to test out this airframe. And it first flies with British engines 1st October 1942. General Electric will be approached to build what becomes America's first 
jet engines. And this is the I-16, the I-16, yeah, the I-16 that General Electric will build. General Electric was specifically chosen because they didn't build engines. Okay? We didn't want Wright to do it because they built really cool engines. And they might find conflict of interest. Well, why would I build a jet engine if I'm building a really good reciprocating engine? Pratt & Whitney struck from the list. All these other places were struck from the list. And Henry Harley Hap Arnold said, General Electric, you build the turbo superchargers for B-17 engines and the turbo supercharger, impeller and compressor, all it needs in the middle is the burning part and you've got a jet engine. And the General Electric guys go, Oh, yeah, I wonder why we, ne we never thought of that. Well, here's the plans from Britain. Go build them. And they said, how soon do you need a thousand? He said, next week. Okay. General Electric cranks up production very, very quickly and starts building license-built British designs of the Whittle engines. And they look very similar, don't they? Eventually, we get fairly decent production in the United States to where we can build our own. And our Whittle engines turn out to be better than Whittle's Whittle engines because of standardization and tolerances and materials and production, etc., etc. So we have a jet program going by 1942. Again, all incentive from the top. By the end of the war, okay, I'm fast-forwarding a bit here, but once again, the United States, we really don't need them. We've got the P-51, we've got the P-38, we've got the P-47, and we're bombing the heck out of Germany. So it's all about the bombers and the combined bomber offensive. We can't really, we don't really have a desperate need for the jet like the Germans do, for example. That said, by the end of the war, you have Bell Aircraft, XB-59A, the Lockheed, P-80, and five other companies in the United States building jet airframes. You also have engines from General Electric, by that point, the I-16, what's the other one? Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting my numbers confused. It's in the book. I-16. And four other companies building jet engines. So we pretty much say, that's a good idea. We're going to go with it. And we're just going to you know, kick it down the road. And everybody's going to get some money during wartime. We get everybody interested in this. And they all go, yeah, this is a good idea. This will supersede existing aircraft. By the end of the war, the P-80 is flying, at least over the United States. I have one account of two of them that go to Italy to do a demonstration flight right after the end of the war. So we go in full hog. And the companies are given the contracts and the money to build these, even if we didn't have the incentive, the people, to think about the ideas initially. We relied on the British designs at the beginning of the war. So, the end of the war. Let me go back to some stories. Successes? Question mark? That's what that's for.
Jets at war. The Germans are the ones to produce and put into operational use, combat, jet aircraft. The British do a little bit with home defense. The Americans do not. Here are some raw numbers. By the end of the war, the Germans have produced 1,294 ME-262s. And this is actually from the Air Force website. Thank you very much. It's the Air Force Museum website. That's one that was flown here at Dayton after the war. 1,294. Of that number, there are no more than 400 that actually become operational. Well, why is that? Brand new technology, you're going to have some problems. You're going to have some accidents. There are issues with pilots understanding jet technology, especially if they've grown up in propellers. Lots and lots of accidents. About 400 aircraft, about 400 of those 262s lost to accident. About another 400 are going to be lost to air raids at the factory, on the park, on the tarmac, somewhere in transportation, getting to operational uh, squadrons. So you really only have about 400 that reach operational units. Still not too bad, right? Not really. We're coming to that. Another handful of the Arado bombers and maybe a half a dozen of the Heinkel 162s. So we're talking about 1,300 airplanes. Here's another story for you. Adolf Galland, one of the most highly decorated Luftwaffe pilots of the war, falls out of favor with Goering in, in December 1944. And that's really putting it nicely. Uh, Goering just starts to hate him. Hitler still thinks he's pretty cool. So Adolf Galland goes to Hitler and he goes, Dude, Goering doesn't like me anymore. I'm paraphrasing. Of course, he was saying it in German. Dude, Goering doesn't like me anymore. Let me form my own squadron. And Hitler says, Dude, you're pretty cool. You can form your own squadron. Gives him a letter. Go form your own squadron. That squadron is known as JV-44, Jagdverband, in German, sorry. Jagdverband 44, JV-44. And his letter says, from Hitler, give this guy whatever he wants, in German. And he goes around, and he goes to Messerschmitt, and he goes, I want those airplanes. Here's my letter. Messerschmitt goes, all right, take them. And then he goes around to other squadrons, and he goes, to all of his buddies. Hey, join me in my new squadron. It's going to be awesome. And his buddies do. He's not, he's not lacking for pilots. They're like, jets? Cool. And he gathers a squadron, squadron of experten, squadron of experts, all of the highest ranking air aces in the whole Luftwaffe, except for one, Eric Hartman, who's doing really well on the Eastern Front. And he says, nah, you guys go ahead. He gathers all of his friends together, all the really cool Luftwaffe pilots, and he goes, let's go fly jets. In his Galan's diary, he says, we already know the war's over, so we just want to have some fun shooting down Americans. He doesn't say the last part, but that's what the fun means. And he forms this squadron, and they go fly jets in the very, very closing days of the Second World War for the Germans. 10 April 1945 is an interesting date in this whole story, and here's why. Ten April 1945 is the most active day 
for jet combat in the Second World War. Went through the records. I saved you the time. It's written in the book. Did I say that too often? I really want you to buy a couple. 10 April 1945, Galland and his buddies and all the jet squadrons in Germany, and there's three of them, decide they're going to launch a raid against the incoming American bomber stream. On that day, the Luftwaffe is able to put up 55 ME-262s. That's the most active day. 55 ME-262s. Not bad, right? Against a bomber stream of 800 B-17s and 1,200 P-51s. Okay? That is industrial production on a massive scale. On our side, yay America, 800 bombers and 1,200 fighters against the best of the Luftwaffe, 55 ME-262. It's no wonder they lost, which is a good thing. But that's the most active day of jet combat. So if you look at the 1,294, you might be a little bit impressed, but if you get to the actual reality of combat operations, it's a drop in the bucket. They shoot down a couple. We shoot down a couple of them. And I'll get to that in just a second. But that's the best the Germans could do. We had good enough aircraft to destroy the Luftwaffe in Germany. Their best couldn't compete with our not-too-bad. And the P-51's not-too-bad. I mean, it's a pretty good airplane. Here's where the real successes come. Success! And there's the exclamation point. The real successes come in the post-war production in the United States, specifically in the Soviet Union. In the United States, we go in right towards the end of the war and right after the war, and we mount what's called Operation Lusty. I love the old operational names, right? They're fantastic. Lusty stood for Luftwaffe Secret Technology. And a bunch of aircraft designers and engineers and pilots and people went into Germany and they said, we're going to gather up all the cool stuff the Germans have and we're going to bring it back to the United States. There were a couple of programs going on at the same time. One was for the atomic scientist. One was for the rocket scientist. Lusty was for the aircraft. And we grab up all the cool German airplanes that you see out on the floor of the Air Force Museum because uh, that's where they end up after we tested them extensively. And those designs and what the Germans were hoping to work on had they survived, become part of the American industrial process. And we build a lot on what the Germans had been working on at the end of the war. Some of it directly copied, some of it sort of derivative. Because we also bring a bunch of the scientists and designers and say, hey, why don't you come build airplanes for us? And of course, the very famous story, infamous, famous, you make the judgment call. Werner von Braun goes to Alabama and builds rockets. But what you get is a technology transfer from Germany, a defeated Germany in 1945, to the United States. It also goes over to the bad guys. In this story, it's played by the Soviets. And they take German jet technology specifically and directly, and they build their first series of jet fighters. Theirs look a little bit more cumbersome. Ours look absolutely beautiful. Oh, and there's a British one at the top, too. But the Soviets do the same thing because they're way behind even us. There is no Soviet jet program during the war. 
They're focusing on other things. And so the Soviets are going to benefit mightily from the German efforts during the war. And they're going to build their jet program almost directly based on German technologies. Okay? Alrighty. So, uh, Meteor. This one's the Bell's follow-on uh, called the... Uh, escapes me right now. It's the bigger version of the XB-59. P-63 isn't right. Somebody help me out. 83, thank you very much. Whew. Somebody in the audience, help me. Okay. And then the P-80 at the bottom. The first jet-to-jet -jet combat is, of course, not going to be realized until 1950. So, as I'm teaching my majors and lieutenant colonels out in the big blue Air Force, I break it down into military effectiveness, the levels of war. And I'll just let you know. I'll convey this to you. See if you like it or not. Tactically, as individuals, I argue that jets were a technological revolution. You don't see very many propeller planes anymore, do you? They changed the nature of aviation, of air combat, of pretty much everything we think about when we think about airplanes, especially for the younger generation. We had a great conversation about the younger generation at dinner and the things that they forgot that, of course, they never knew because we're old. Well, at least I am. At the individual level, these were awesome airplanes. The ME-262 was about 100 miles an hour faster than the P-51. Could catch the Mosquito from behind. Very, very fast. Very, very heavily armored. And put in the right hands of the experts right at the end of the war, really, really deathly airplanes. Okay? Operationally, you have, in the German jet program at least, a potential game changer. And I put potential in there because there was a lot of potential. I don't want to take anything away from the German aircraft designers. Excuse me, and the engine designers. But it was simply not realized. A little bit of too little too late. A little bit of meddling from the higher command. Problems with the engines themselves. Problems with the airframes. But if you look at the life cycle of any technology, it, they take, it takes a while to develop. It takes a while to produce. It takes a while to understand how to use a revolutionary technology. And besides that, the United States, we wouldn't have sat back. We probably would have built something to compete with it because we can. And we were in war. At the strategic level, insignificant to the outcome of the Second World War. The German jets simply did not make a difference. They're a very cool story, and they have a coolness factor. That's why I wrote about them. But they don't change the Second World War, and honestly, I don't see how they could have ever changed the Second World War. I, I, you play it out in your mind, you get them a year earlier, if, even if that was feasible, it simply doesn't change the outcome of World War II. But they do become significant in the early Cold War arms race as the Americans and the Soviets are competing and eventually competing in the skies over Korea, Vietnam, and etc. Tactical, operational, and strategic. So that's me. That's my presentation. Hope I stirred up a little bit of controversy. So I'll leave you with one more. Uh, this isn't our airplane. I warned Jeff about this earlier. This is White 35, which was recently rebuilt at the uh, 
National Museum of Naval Aviation in Pensacola, Florida. So I was there a couple of weeks ago and got my picture taken in front of White 35. It's the two-seater that uh, was lent to them for rebuilding. There is one here, the two-seater's down in Pensacola. <laughs>